Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. Hi, I'm Dr. Yosef Wittering, and today I'm joined by Dr. Valsa Madava, and uh, she is an uh, an internal medicine doctor who specializes in addiction, but also does some integrative um, medicine work and uh, lately has been uh, seeing patients who have uh, benzodiazepine withdrawal problems. Um, She's been doing this for a while, and what we'll be doing today is we're going to talk about how uh, Dr. Madhava started, uh, you know, came to treat benzodiazepine uh, patients, you know, doing withdrawals, treating protracted injury, and then also talk about uh, her clinical experience working with these folks and, uh, also, her experience with uh, functional medicine as well as uh, as a treatment for uh, protracted withdrawal. So, uh, with that introduction, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Madhava, and uh, please go ahead and uh, uh, introduce yourself. So, thanks, Joseph, for having me. And uh, yeah, so let's uh, have a discussion. So, I'm an internist, as you said, and I've been doing straight up internal medicine, general practice for a long time and also addiction medicine mixed in with it. And I got certified in addiction medicine recently. And also I got certified in functional medicine in the last few years. So for the last several decades, I guess I've been working in different kinds of addiction programs. And almost all the time when the patients come in for treatment of addictions, we you know, inpatient, when we do detox treatment for five to seven days or in an opioid treatment program, when the patient comes in, even in the first visit, they think they're getting cured. They think that's all they need to get rid of their addiction. So like it's it's an antibiotic model, I call it. I call it the antibiotic model. They come in, get five days of methadone detox for opioid or the same amount for same number of days for benzos and for alcohol. And they really are hoping that they'll never use that substance again. <laughs> so at that time, I was when I was thinking about this, and I was also in uh, studying functional medicine at some point, and I just sort of thought maybe, functional medicine can help these patients. Now, can we sort of help the patients really, cure is the wrong word, but really help them deal with their addictions better than our conventional model, which is detox and then having them go to rehab, which is basically medication-free. So Mm -hmm. I got into a private practice where I could do a functional medicine model for treating addictions. So the way I was taught, the way I understood addictions was to include benzodiazepine as an addiction, just like alcohol, cocaine, opioids. So I had that model when I started my functional medicine addiction practice. So as I started to see patients, it was the patients that sort of indicated to me that benzodiazepines is not an addiction, it's a dependence. And they really wanted care in a different kind of way. Almost all of them pointed to the Ashton manual and sort of wanted a slow taper over several months, years. And I let them dictate the taper because, and that's how I ran my practice is it was a very patient centered model with my guidance. So for whatever addictions they came in with, I had a, I had a way of um, addressing that addiction but I let the patient sort of guide me in that. Um, I, in think that 
You know, an, an interesting distinction, which will be useful for people listening, is 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 the difference between uh, addiction and dependence. I wonder if you could kind of talk to that and and uh, and speak to why it's it's important to not confuse the two with respect to benzodiazepines. So, benzodiazepines is not an addiction. Benzodiazepine uses a dependence. Um, so one of the first things is you can look at the at the surveys that was done. So there was a survey mm-hmm. done in 2016, and it was a survey based on prior year use. So what they showed were that 30.5 million people use benzos the prior year. Out of 30.5 million, only about 5 million misused it. So misused was defined as not using it exactly as prescribed. So if uh, Xanax was prescribed twice a day, then misuse would be if they took it once a day or three times a day. And then, but when you look at the misuse, which is 5 million out of 30.5 million, most of those individuals misused it for better sleep or because they were having an anxiety moment or because they had some sort of emotional issue. More than two-thirds of them used it for the reasons that you would use a benzodiazepine for. Only 11% used it to get high. And most of those are usually young people, like between the ages of, I don't know, 17 to 25. But Mm -hmm. it did show that 500,000 people, so 0.2% out of 30 million really had an addiction. So that's how they, so even with that survey, there was just such a small minority that are, can be classified as an addiction. And yet all, almost all the benzo users are sort of classified as having an addiction rather than a dependence. And I mean, there's so many other instances. So there was an article that came out in JAMA, it was last year. And the authors just went through the 11 criteria that make up a diagnosis of addiction. Addiction is now called a use disorder. So these authors went through the 11 criteria that constitute a substance use disorder. That was something that came up with the DSM-5 in 2013, I think. Mm -hmm. And so they went through the 11 criteria. The benzo users only met criteria 10 and 11, which is tolerance and physiologic dependence which you would expect with any medication, any SSRIs, almost mm-hmm. any medications can give you this tolerance is needing to use more of the medication to f- feel the same. And physical dependence is having withdrawal symptoms when you either take the drug later, take the medication later, or if you miss the dose. So those are natural tolerance and physical dependence or withdrawal symptoms are a natural consequence of using the medication. So that does not make it an addiction. So because when you, you know, when you say addiction, it conjures up images of someone using, you know, methamphetamine or heroin, you know, it's drug seeking behavior. They're going out, you know, maybe they're, uh, you know, sp- spending more of their resources than they should on it. And they're using it for um, essentially to get high is, is, is the idea, you know, they're using it to uh, get that specific psychological effect that is, um, you know that that is pleasant and 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 maybe euphoric, and that is just so not the case with the majority of the folks that we're seeing with the benzodiazepine problems, and 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 then also you know the the patients are treated in this way. You know, so many people that I guess come to my clinic will say that 
you know, they've moved state and, um, you know, they, they start up with another provider and they go, oh, you know, you're on a benzodiazepine, this is no good. Um, and, you know, God forbid they're on Suboxone as well because they've had, you know, maybe an, uh, an opiate use disorder in the past. They, they take one look at that medication list and say, we're, pull, we're pulling you off these benzos. It's, it's going to happen in, in two weeks. And if you're not interested in that, then um, you can kind of go somewhere else for your drug-seeking, you know, treatment. Um, and that's a sad story, but, but it's a common one. So yeah, so that's the that's the problem with misdiagnosis, miscategorization, because it, the way you treat a dependence versus addiction is very different. Once you have a diagnosis of addiction, then you the pathway there is you send them, especially for benzos, you send them to an inpatient unit for detox, which is ba- basically medically supervised withdrawal for five to seven days, and then you send them to rehab, medication free. So that is not the path for someone who doesn't have an addiction. And I just try to show you why benzodiazepine is not an addiction. So when some, when you can sort of say, okay, benzodiazepine is a dependence, and this is what we need to do for this kind of dependence, because benzodiazepines change the brain. That's the bottom line. And how do we get the brain back to functioning the way it was before it saw the benzodiazepine? And so for that, you need to do a slower taper. You need to do, you need to withdraw the medication from the brain in a way that it can slowly get back into balance. And the biggest problem with conflating dependence and addiction is not knowing the neurobiology. Addiction is about dopamine, dopamine receptors, and the reward pathway. That is definitely, for most of the patients, it's, that whole system is not involved in benzodiazepines. It's usually the GABA and the glutamate, recept, uh, GABA and glutamate neurotransmitter system. So dopamine doesn't come into play that much in this. So just the neurobiology takes you away from the scene of addiction. So you have the survey, then you have the paper that I just quoted from um, last year and just the definition of DSM and now the neurobiology. So you have all different ways of sort of showing this is not an addiction. So, And then to treat them as if they had an addiction is such a grave, grave disservice to the benzo-using community, I think. Yeah, and dangerous as well because if someone gets tapered too fast, a lot of the anecdotes that I hear is that ends up being the precipitating factor for problems like bind um, are these rapid tapers. Um, and so I want to ask you, so so since you transitioned to your private practice, uh, to your clinic now, um, what's your experience like treating benzodiazepine dependence? How's, how's that been going? So when I started... So, okay, in my practice, what I do is I collect a lot of information Mm -hmm. and then I do a lot of testing and then it's based on the physiology, right? Like, so we, we have the patients change their diet, movement is a big part of it, and then other kinds of modalities and include supplements. So that's the framework for functional medicine. And so I did that, you know, got a lot of information about the patient and, you know, ruled out certain things, ruled in other things, and then did a lot of testing. And while we were waiting for testing, we started some supplements and then, and then did a very slow taper. 
and the tapering was completely decided, determined by the patient. I would just sort of give them advice. I would, so I'm not, I'm not sure that everyone needs to change to Valium. I think they can perhaps taper with the medication that they're on. So I would recommend for them to remain with the medication. But almost all of them had read the Ashton Manual, and they all wanted to change over to Valium. Well, so yeah, tell, tell us about that. What's your experience like? I guess because probably initially you were like me, and you probably tried to put people on Valium, or maybe you're not. But I, I'd, I'd love to hear about your experience attempting that and why you've kind of landed in this place where, hey, maybe we'll just try and taper you on um, um, on what you're on. So, so sorry, we need to okay. cut that. Yeah. <laughs> it was my daughter. Um, yeah. um, all right. So in terms, can you repeat the question? So we'll- yeah, yeah, no, no, that's okay. So I was going to say, um, uh, you mentioned something that goes counter to the Ashton manual that, you know, maybe, maybe we don't need to swap people on, over to Valium. How did you come to that decision? Because patients, when they switch over, the vast majority have trouble, actually. Mm-hmm. And they have trouble during the switch and just... You know, I don't, I don't know exactly why, but actually, this brings up another point: is when um, docs and facilities decide that they don't want to give a certain benzodiazepine and they want to give another one, that also creates the same problem because we're not sure what's happening in the brain that it's sort of, in quotes, used to one benzodiazepine, and when then you substitute another one, it still goes through changes. I can give you an example of what happened in Louisville, Kentucky, I think. There was a county there that decided in 2011 that they would stop giving Xanax. That was because they were having a lot of overdose mm-hmm. deaths combination of um, benzos and opioids. So they decided, okay, we're not going to give Xanax because that was the most prescribed substance. Okay, that was a fine decision. But then the next decision was, we are going to taper patients off of benzo or switch patients, all the patients that are on Xanax, we're going to switch them over to clonopin. And so that when I read that, I was just like, wow, that is like a horrible thing to do because yeah, many patients will do fine, but there are a certain number of patients that don't do well with the switches. Even though it's it's like it's a longer acting. It doesn't matter to the brain. The brain just doesn't see that. It just sort of sees it's a different medication and it goes into some sort of um, disequilibrium. And f- anyway, that, that was what was done. I don't think that was. Um, but that makes sense, right? Because, you know, I think, you know, like you mentioned, I mean, the main rationale for swapping people over on onto Valium is, you know, this medication has a much longer half-life. You're going to have less um, fluctuations in your serum concentration of the active ingredient, you know, kind of at the neuron. But there's a lot more to it. There's, I guess, what we would call the pharmacodynamics, which is the interaction of the chemical with the actual neurons. And, uh, you know, Valium and, you know, Xanax, um, Presumably, they they will have different. You know, they're different chemicals. They'll have different effects on diff- on the neurotransmitter systems. And so, ultimately, I, I I feel like you. You know, sometimes it works and it can treat some interdose withdrawal type symptoms, but for a lot of patients, they don't do too well. And 
you know, they'll either become, I guess the main thing with the Valium is they complain of some cognitive dulling and uh, so maybe some depression as well. And so I started to tell people it might be better to dance with the devil that you know, you know, and if you're on Xanax and you're taking it twice a day, but you're having interdose withdrawal, you know, we'll stay on the Xanax, but we'll split it into, you know, three or four doses over the day um, and, 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 and move forward in that way. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. And I think um, heard that mm-hmm. Dr. Ashton also recommended maybe too fast for some people. So I often tell patients that the the dose reduction that she recommends may not be the right tempo for them. They might need to do slow it down. And hmm. sometimes- yeah, what do, what do you find it to be like a good rate from your experience? It all varies, probably depending on where they are. Like it's a whole spectrum of patients, right? Um, some patients can do well, right? Like the standard, what, what do they call in, in conventional medicine? They do like what, 10, 25% every few weeks. You know, that's like so rapid. I, I don't think that many patients will tolerate that, but perhaps some will. I think 2.5, 5% and every week, every two weeks would be. A that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I landed at about five to 10% every three weeks. And then some people want to do it in two weeks and some people want to do it in four weeks, but it all, yeah, it's, it's a mixed bag. Okay. That that's interesting. Um, the, the other thing that I thought was unique about your practice is that you do a lot of the functional medicine testing and supplementation before you begin the tapers. I, I was wondering if you could speak to uh, why you do that and, and, and what you believe the benefit is in, in I guess, optimi- you know, optimizing their health with the functional medicine before initiating the taper? Um, I think stability. I think I'm looking for stability in the patient so that they mm-hmm. can undergo the taper. I think um, patients still have difficulty, even though it's a tiny taper, tiny taper down, there's still disturbances in the brain that uh, they still have withdrawal symptoms even with that small decrement. So trying to get them as stable, as fully functional as possible before they start the taper. But of course, many patients are so eager to start the taper like right away. So we may not get them to that right level of stability that I would like. And I don't necessarily wait to get the results of the testing before I start the supplements. Oftentimes I'll just guess on the supplements, some standard ones. But it's not standard for everyone. Everyone is different, and many patients have side effects to the supplements, so you have to be really careful with them. Yeah, so that's what I would say is. And then once you get the results back, then it's much easier to give supplements because then you know, okay, you're deficient in this, and then you monitor for for side effects. I think the gut is always implicated in this. We need to have a good, strong gut. I think the benzos probably affect the gut microbiome which are these organisms that live in our GI tract, which is, you know, between the mouth and the anus, there's a, there's this long tube and in in the large intestine, the latter part of this tube, there are these organisms that live there naturally. They're about, I think about three pounds worth of organisms there. And they're there to help us. We've evolved over the millennia with them. And so they're there to help us. They synthesize vitamins for us. They, they do a lot of beneficial they give us a lot of beneficial metabolites. So it's good to have those microbiota in the right proportion. So I think many things affect the right balance. 
And I think benzos might be part of it, but also our diet, the chemicals in the air, the water that we drink. It's very easy for for us not to have the right balance. So once I get that test, you know, I might do some tweaking there and then if there are nutrient imbalances. And so, yeah, I, I start some supplements early and then some later. Are there any supplements that are specifically useful for benzo withdrawal or does it really just kind of depend on how the, the, the tests return from the patient? I think magnesium is a good one. I think magnesium. Okay, sure. Good. Um, and anything that maybe B6. I like mm-hmm. B6 because to, uh, to, you know, glutamate is the father of GABA or mm-hmm. the mother. So to go from glutamate to GABA, you need B6. So that's fundamental. It doesn't seem logical that you have the excitatory neurotransmitter, you know, leading to the inhibitory neurotransmitter. Mm-hmm. So if you give B6, if they're deficient, so you might be able to sort of push that path a little bit more towards GABA. Okay, great. And, and is there is there a kind of a diet that you recommend just generally um, for for patients when they come and see you and they're looking to kind of optimize their overall health before beginning a taper? Yeah, a low glycemic diet, not too much sugar and processed foods, no caffeine. And the reason is is because hypoglycemia, low blood sugar symptoms are similar to some of the benzo withdrawal symptoms. Like you can have anxiety and sleeplessness waking up in the middle of the night with low blood sugar. And in fact, there was a study in 1966, which showed this particular doc, he he did an evaluation. At that time, they were doing five and six hour glucose tolerance tests. And he did glucose tolerance tests of all patients who had come to him with a diagnosis of a neuropsychiatric diagnosis. But he decided to do an OGTT on all of them. And he found that a lot of them, like a significant number of them had hypoglycemia. This is even before our diets changed in the 70s and 80s. And what he also found that some of these patients were on anxiolytics. So the question is, were some of these symptoms of anxiety and sleeplessness due to hypoglycemia? And then they got treated with, you know, the barbiturates or benzodiazepines because that was what was available then. Um, You know, that's a question, right? So are we using, are we giving benzos to patients who might have hypoglycemia? And then the other reason to think of hypoglycemia, <laughs> benzo is not an addiction, but in a lot of the addictions, hypoglycemia is very, very common. So I always think about a low, low carb, low processed food, high protein, highish fat diet, and then eating several times a day, not just you know a couple of times. Really separating the meals so that uh, you have a steady influx of nutrients. And and why does cutting carbs, I guess the processed food and the and the simple car- carbohydrates like the sugars and you know wheat flour that kind of stuff why does that regulate your blood sugar levels so you're not having hypoglycemia what I, I don't know if you if you can speak to kind of what it is about that diet that makes it um, you know people just more stable you know dro- you know dropping those foods so the processed foods because it affects the gut microbiome but okay. even foods can. um, So carbs in general, what happens is a carb is um, essentially broken down into sugar molecules. 
So carbohydrates are complexes of sugar molecules. So when you eat them and they're digested, they're digested into smaller molecules. So when the sugar hits our system, is absorbed, the body tries to deal with it. And the way it deals with it is by releasing insulin. So mm -hmm. what the insulin in the blood does is it gets rid of the sugar so the sugar doesn't stay in the blood. And depending on the amount of sugar that you eat, you might have a lot of insulin that's secreted by the pancreas. And so you might have a dipping of the sugar level in the blood. So you have low blood sugar for some period of time because of perhaps the excess insulin that's being secreted by the pancreas. So at that moment, when the sugar is so low, you might have jitteriness, you might have anxiety. So that's when, you know, if you're if you have different kinds of addictions, you you go to the drug of choice. And maybe with a benzo, you're becoming anxious at that moment. And, you know, you're you you may think that anxiety anxiety is due to maybe interdose withdrawal. I don't know. I'm not sure, but I'm just sort of saying that steadying the sugar in your blood is, is, is a good thing to do. So eating regularly, so you don't have these highs and lows of sugar in your blood. is a good and thing. And what, what do you think about like, um, cause the diet you described, it's kind of heading towards a, a more ketogenic diet where you said high fats, meats, um, and then I guess, uh, more, more vegetables. Do you think, um, um, I mean, is that a diet that you think is useful, uh, I guess, for benzodiazepine withdrawal and, you know, these these kinds of anxiety as well? I don't know if you have experience using that kind of diet. So ketogenic diet really means that you have ketones in the urine or in the blood. So mm -hmm. achieve ketogenic ketosis, you need to eat less than 25 grams, 25 to 30 grams of carbs. That's very hard to do. You really have to be dedicated and devoted to that mission of getting ketotic. So ketogenic diets in general. So I don't know if you've been following the literature. It shows that mm -hmm. ketogenic diets are good in the mental health space, right? Mm -hmm. Like for schizophrenia, for bipolar. And the reason is because it, there's a lot of um, dysregulation of, uh, of using glucose in the brain cells. So the brain cells are not able to use glucose. And that's the same mechanism for Alzheimer's. I don't want to get into that, but the brain cells are having difficulty using sugar for fuel. So when you're when you have um, ketosis, you have a different kind of molecule called beta hydroxybutyrate, which can be used as fuel for the brain for the brain cells. And so that's why they were thinking that if there's sugar dysregulation at the brain level, then perhaps a ketogenic diet would be useful for many mental health disorders. So specifically for benzodiazepines, I'm not sure. It's a very hard diet to follow and the patients are already suffering. They already have mm -hmm. gut issues. Patients have been losing weight. It's not the first thing that I would think of for a patient who is trying to get away from benzodiazepines. I think we'd need for them to probably eat more and then, you know, take care of their gut and then give them the right kinds of supplements. And eventually you can pull back the supplements if they're eating well, right? If we get to that point. But a lot of patients have a lot of issues with um, with eating and uh, and with having a good diet. Great. Thank, thank you. That's, uh, that, was, that was a really educational response. Um, I, I want to shift and ask you a little bit about what do you think are the biggest challenges in uh, treating benzodiazepine dependence? 
So in my practice, I think I'd probably get tough patients, just like I'm sure you do. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, when I went in with the functional medicine framework, I thought that if I, you know, took care of the gut, if I took care of uh, some of the nutrient depletions, that they would do better with their tapers. And in general, they do better. They are able to go through the tapers. You know, they might be able to go back to work. They might have less um, social and uh, work dysfunction. But I think it's still, there's still a lot of difficulty with the taper. Like when patients are getting to the point of their, to decrease their dose, a lot of patients still have symptoms around that. So I think functional medicine may not be the complete answer for that. You know, for those patients, that are having a lot of difficulty with the tapering. I think there are other disruptions going on in the brain. It's not just about GABA and glutamate. Like I was thinking it's mitochondria, which is what we're saying with the ketogenic diet. What you're doing is trying to give a different kind of fuel for the mitochondria rather than not rather than the mitochondria having to process sugar. Now they're processing uh, beta hydroxybutyrate or something else for energy. Yes. So, oh, sorry, you were saying... Um, no. Yeah. Okay. What do you think is going on with bind? Um, you know, because you, you were talking a little bit about, you know, underlying pathophysiology just before. I'd love to get your perspective on, on, because I, I, I mean, we spoke before this. You do have some patients in protracted withdrawal slash bind, and yeah, yeah. What, what do you think is happening with them? So I've spent tons and tons of time actually trying to figure out what's going on. So. There's some calcium dysregulation at the cellular level. And so there's a, there are certain, like we have ion channels, we, you know, mm -hmm. with the benzo, um, the GABA receptor. We also have different kinds of other channels like calcium channels. It seems that there's some sort of calcium dysregulation, more calcium getting into the cells. And um, that causes things like oxidative stress, meaning you have extra oxidants. So oxidants are these free radicals, these uh, molecules that have unpaired electrons on them. So these radicals can cause a lot of damage to different components of the cell. And maybe because of the glutamate and this calcium issue, I think there's a lot more of this oxidative stress going on. You know, it's good to have a a limited number of these free radicals, but if you have too much, then that itself can cause problems. So I think that's a big issue and there are different kinds of free radicals and how do we deal with them and what's the damage that's um, that they have caused. So it's to look at that a little bit deeper. And you know, I, I've known that oxidative stress is a, is a problem. So I've tried to deal with it with supplements. But the supplements I've been using so far is not necessarily the complete answer for bind. So I keep looking and trying to figure out. So I do a lot of, um, let's see, um, literature-based um, usage of different kinds of molecules. So everything that I do is based on the literature. And then I try to use literature from, say, the Alzheimer's world or the Parkinson's or autism literature and sort of say, okay, what's similar about the dysfunction that's happening in those disease states that I could apply to bind to this severe dysfunction that's going on for some proportion of patients. So that's what I'm working on right now is to sort of see, can I 
Can I use other molecules? So I'm starting to use peptides. So with peptides, it's mostly around trying to make the patients feel better, the stabilization part and the beginning before we start the taper. So I'm using peptides to see if we can make a difference. I'm not sure that we can. It's just, you know, we know that some of the peptides can can affect the GABA receptor is to sort of see, okay, if we do that, can we help the patient? You know, it's all theories on one side, but when we actually use it, does it really work? So I'm trying to figure out if, you know, theoretically, I know that they affect the GABA receptor. Now I'm using it. Does it really work? And so far I can tell you, maybe yes, maybe no. So it's there's nothing, no definitive peptide that I've found so far that is that is it. But I've just started to use peptides in my practice. That's interesting. And, and I mean, for me, I mean, part, part of that is what actually makes medicine fun. You know, if you can take these evidence-based experiments and, you know, work with your patients to try and find new things, especially for these, I guess, these, these illnesses, which, which aren't well known. I mean, I've, I've done countless, countless uh, trials of different medications for people who have been having bind you know i think i've tried probably every single migraine medication you know every single you know typical medication for neuropathy uh i i you know this i think yeah so so i mean that's that's exciting have you stumbled across anything that maybe in just one patient it made quite you know a, a noticeable difference so Different patients come in with different symptoms, mm-hmm. right? So I don't use necessarily the same peptides. So there was one patient who had sleep issues. And so I used a particular peptide with him. And so I'm waiting to see. It sort of helped him, but you know, one or two days is not enough for me. It has to be consistent. So I don't know. That might be the peptide that helps him. Then there is another peptide that sort of is supposed to affect the GABA receptor. And I thought, mm-hmm. oh, great. No, it hasn't really uh, made a difference. So just like using, as you said, using the literature and in innovative mm-hmm. ways to lessen the suffering of many, many of my, of our patients, that's sort of the goal. And, you know, once we figure out some, I guess my goal would be really trying to figure out what is the root cause of these bind symptoms, right? There has to be something, maybe not one thing, but I really think that you know, oxidative stress, or, you know, if I dig deep enough, I, I think I, I'm hoping that I can find something that I can address with the patient. So that's my hope. I yeah, I, looking for this. So I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I don't think I've, I've thought about it as, as, as deep as you have. But the, the thing that kind of sticks out to me is, especially just based on the the anecdotes of people who seem to develop the injury acutely after an abrupt withdrawal, is there something about when I guess you pull out the gap, you know, the benzodiazepine, and then you d- you no longer have this um, external substance, you know, providing that that uh, presence that the body is used to, and then you know, with that gone, then you just have glutamate and the excitatory neurotransmitter system, you know, essentially functioning without any breaks. And may- maybe there is something about that that is destabilizing. You know, maybe causing dysregulation in, in calcium and the production of free radicals. But ultimately what I think is happening at that, at that point is um, whether we want to call it free radicals or something else is going on is that there's actually neuronal damage, you know, that there's um, because, you know, what we find and, and you've probably seen this is they'll go through the acute withdrawal or they get rapid tapered too rapidly. They develop the 
spec the full bind spectrum of symptoms and then you put them back on the medication and they still have all the symptoms they're you know extremely uncomfortable and and they're back on their regular dose and so that so there's been a um some kind of lesion like a an injury that's taken place in the meantime and then you know they're just back on their previous dose but they have all of those symptoms and then the clinical course also seems to suggest injury because it takes months to years to to improve over time which seems to suggest to me that this is the brain just slowly um i guess rebuilding um whatever was damaged Mm. yeah um i so if someone wants to come and they want to see you and, and 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 go to your practice where are you what should they know uh tell us a little bit about that So I have a practice in New York and I can sort of do telemedicine for for the functional medicine side of it elsewhere. And it's really a concierge practice, meaning that when patients come in, they pay us a fee for all the services. So that includes all the testing. And I would say at this point, almost unlimited visits with me. So that means that for some patients, I'm in daily touch with them. And I meet with them, you know, twice a week, but we have frequent contact with our patients, especially patients who are really suffering. They need a lot of contact and we're working with different supplements also. So that's another reason to have a frequent, a lot of touch points with patients. So, so it's a, it's a practice that, you know, they pay one fee and they get a lot of services, including me. Then I have a mental health consultant who works with us. There's a nutritionist who works with us and also a mindfulness and uh, meditation coach. And then all the supplements are included. And so because it's one fee, it gives me the freedom to try different kinds of supplements, different kinds of molecules. And also often I find that patients who are affected with uh, with benzodiazepines, they've already done their research, right? Like they know so much mm-hmm. and often know more than you. Actually, that's how I learn, right? And yep. so they're also coming to me with things that they might want to try. So this gives both them and me the freedom to try different molecules, different substances to see if that'll make a difference in their health. So it's a, it's one fee and then there's a monthly fee. And yeah, so that's how the practice works. And there's no fee for service, unfortunately, just because that's the kind of practice we have at this moment is to really try to understand what's going on and trying to make the patient feel better. So I call that model. Yeah. And do they have to be in New York? Can they be in any other states to see you? Yeah. For now, I, as a uh, New York, Connecticut, and okay. of course, those are adjacent states. And then I'm trying to get telehealth licenses elsewhere. But if they have a prescriber and they just need the other part of it, which is the functional medicine part of it, that can be done anywhere because then I become a functional coach, basically, or consultant. They don't need me for the prescription part of it. So that can be done across the country. It's when they need medications that there are some legal and uh, our board sure. requirements for what needs to be done. Okay, great. Um, I've covered all of the questions that I wanted to ask you. Is Did you have any other final thoughts or anything that you think is important to talk about? No, I think I think we covered most of it. I guess it's just that, you know, the taper needs to be slow and to find a provider that's kind, you know, I think that's the hardest thing to do is to find someone that's kind and just willing to work with you. I think that's where 
us as benzo wise providers need to you know go out there and educate other providers to you know to provide the service for patients who are really in need great well thank you so much it's been a pleasure talking to you i hope we can stay in touch and uh and yeah, I, I really appreciated your insights and your clinical experience uh, working with these patients. Thanks, Joseph. Pleasure meeting you and being here. Okay. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to see the full video interview, we also post these to YouTube. Just go to Wit During Psychiatry on YouTube to find those. You'll also find several YouTube exclusive videos from Drs. Yosef and Marissa posted several times a week. Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, come visit us at witduringpsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.